It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy and Fellow. And while I may be the only fellow who have that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only fellow who's doing podcasts these days. And if you don't believe me, go to our website, hoover.org, and check for yourself. Uh, click on the top of the tab at the homepage. It says commentary. Then scroll over to where it says multimedia, and up will pop the podcast. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcasts. And I hope this one makes the cut because my guest today is the one and only Mike Stedman. Mike Stebbin is a Hoover Institution veteran fellow and founder and CEO of Ironbound Boxing and Education, a nonprofit organization based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities for Newark youth and young adults. Mr. Stebbin also goes by the nickname Iron Mike, and that's because he's a three-time national boxing champion while attending the U.S. Naval Academy, after which he joined the Marine Corps as an infantry officer with deployments to Afghanistan and Japan and the Philippines. Mike Stebbin hosts a weekly podcast entitled Confessions of a Native Son, where he shares his perspectives on race, culture, and business. And if that's not enough, he is now a published author. His book, what's coming out, is called Black Veteran Entrepreneur. We're going to talk about that today, as well as the good work he's doing for Newark. Mike, thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. Bill, thank you for having me here. It's an honor, and I'm really excited to uh, be a part of this platform. Okay, question for you, Sir Iron Mike. Uh, somebody else has that nickname, too. Or is, he, is he cool with you with sharing that with you? I don't know, but here's what I will tell you. You know, my organization is Ironbound Boxing. I've been in the trenches in Newark over the last six years, and I actually had to become Iron Mike, not through boxing, but uh, during the pandemic, because I tell people, you know, uh, if you lived in Newark, New Jersey, in the heart of a global pandemic, you would be iron, too. So it was just something that, uh, you know, I start to t- call myself and it just started to resonate with people. And uh, it stuck. Was uh, Tyson pound for pound the best fighter you ever saw, Mike, or who would, who would be at your pantheon? I love Muhammad Ali. Ali, hands down. He's I think Mike Tyson was great, but Ali was just another level. So Ali is the goat. He, Ali is the goat. Absolutely. So, Mike, my brain was kind of fizzy as I was putting together this podcast, and I finally realized why, and that's because I watch way too many movies on cable. And one movie that keeps popping up on cable, Mike, is a movie called Annapolis. And I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. Um, it's a fictional movie about the uh, Academy's class of 2008 and what happens in plebe year. It stars James Franco as a kid from the wrong side of the tracks who just happens to know a little bit about boxing, Mike, and so he naturally enters the brigade boxing championships, trained only by a couple of his buddies, but somehow he manages to make it all the way to the finals where he encounters his nemesis, a soon-to-be Marine second lieutenant. And, of course, they have a Rocky Apollo-like fight to the death, and he loses, but he wins in the end because he fought the good fight. Um, I don't know if you ever said in the movie, though, but people in the outside world will watch this and, and learn a few things about brigade boxing. This has obviously been an important thing in your life. Tell me how boxing at the academy did shape your life. Boxing was absolutely instrumental. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm here in Newark, New Jersey. Um, I had never boxed before. And I remember being at the Naval Academy prep school watching Annapolis at theaters when it first came out. So I'm originally from Texas, uh, grew up in a single parent home, raised by my mom. And I had an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy and they sent me to the prep school for a year to work on my academics and, you know, get myself ready for the rigors of Annapolis. And so then I end up going to Annapolis, end up boxing, found out I was really good at it. Um, And one of the things, though, that I'll tell you that really um, had boxing play an integral role in my life was my sophomore year of college. My mom suffered a hemorrhagic stroke. So that left her paralyzed um, and uh, hospitalized. Um, ever since. So she's been in a nursing home and stuff. 
And uh, I really had to lean on the sport of boxing to get through the Naval Academy because it's already hard enough and you're dealing with it with a sick parent. And uh, I just poured everything I had in the box. And that's where I found my meaning and my purpose. And it almost became like a religion for me, just a way to, um, you know, like med- I almost like meditation. You know, I don't know. The world just made sense when I was in the ring. I felt confident. I felt like it was one place I could control, you know, me and another opponent. And uh, I just stuck with it. And I ended up winning three national championships, you know, with my mom being sick, two most valuable boxer awards, captain of my boxing team. And when I think about um, just the whole experience at Annapolis, I don't know if I would have graduated if it wasn't for the sport of boxing. So that's really where that connection comes with it for me. Um, and, you know, it's one of my vehicles for giving back to other, you know, um, youth and young adults, particularly those of color and living in the urban communities. You know, and uh, there seems to be a connection between boxing and your book, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, let's talk a bit, though, about your time at the Hoover Institution. So you were part of uh, uh, the first group of uh, veteran fellows. Uh, for those not familiar, uh, this is a one-year commitment to the Hoover Institution. It's non-residential, and we ask you to develop what we call a capstone project. And here's what you got involved in, Mike. Uh, you wanted to look at uh, Newark, New Jersey, where the unemployment rate is about 70% higher than national average. Uh, three out of eight Newark residents live below the poverty line, which is double the national average. Fewer than one in five jobs in the city are held by Newark residents. That just shocked me, uh, which leads to a question, Mike, of the future of work for the city's youth and adults. So tell me what you did with your capstone project. So I'm working on what we're calling the Ironbound Courage Academy, which is a 5,000 square foot boxing gym and incubator space co-located together in the heart of downtown Newark. The reason I want to do this is Um, Our goal through my organization, Ironbound Boxing, is not to make professional boxers. Our goal is to build champions in and out of the ring because I believe the same courage it takes to step inside, you know, that squared circle is the same courage it takes to start a business. You don't believe me, right? Ask any boxer that's turned and became an entrepreneur. It's the real deal. It's scary. It's nerve wracking. You want to run to the door, but, you know, you push forward, you get inside that ring and you deal with it. Same thing when you start a business. And so for me, when I think about innovation around how we're developing youth and young adults, particularly those in urban America, I feel like it's been pretty stagnant, right? So obviously we've got the sports teams, okay? A lot of the legacy organization, the YMCA's of the world, the Boys and Girls Club, right? What does that look like in the 21st century? And for me, I believe it looks like a sick boxing gym that kids want to be at right? It speaks to them. It has agency. And that's the real power of boxing. Boxing has agency in communities like Newark, Detroit, Baltimore, et cetera. I literally grab kids off the street, Bill. I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? Oh, you know, nothing. I'm like, man, come to the gym, right? I don't have to sell them on it. They want it. Um, There's just something about boxing that gives people hope. And I think about like Muhammad Ali, you know, somebody stole his bike. This guy ends up going to a boxing gym with the police officer. I forgot his name. And ends up becoming the greatest of all time, right? right? And when you see these boxing gyms, they're nothing special, right? Just a heavy bag, you know, um, uh, beat up ring, right? Nothing crazy, but it still gives these kids hope. And so for us, we're trying to leverage boxing to build relationships in the inner city. And how do we create a pipeline, right, to prepare these kids for 21st century jobs? And the reason I like entrepreneurship is because it helps kids understand how the economy actually works for them and not the other way around. I think a lot of people, particularly those um, that come from low-income households, tend to feel like they're on the the defense a lot. And it's like, how do you get on offense? And I think one of the ways to get on offense is finding purpose and meaning through launching a venture. 
And what exactly gives the kids hope, Mike, as they go through the boxing experience? Is it is it physically, you know, the challenge, the physical challenge of boxing and pushing yourself, or is it just being amongst others and the camaraderie develops, or or is a little bit of both? This is a great question, right? And I've determined this is what it is, and I would love your feedback on it. I think a lot of these kids, right? Let's let me. I'll give you an example. The kids we specialize with at Ironbound aren't the valedictorians. Right. No one's telling them how great they are, right? That they're amazing. So if you grow up in an environment, you don't have a lot of money, right? You're in one of the more challenging cities in the country, right? Where does your confidence come from if you're not succeeding, you know, academically and you're not on some sports team like football or basketball, we're telling, where everyone's telling you how amazing you are. So right. I think what they want to feel is they want to feel like, they want to know what it feels like to be a champion, right? That's right. the deal. How do you become a champion? And so what we do is we create a pathway for them and we give them um, the option to do it. There's no guaranteed chance of success, but the beautiful thing about boxing is all you got to do is show up, yeah. right? Just that journey. It's like the hero's journey is really what it comes down to. And so, you know, for me, when I joined the military, right, I didn't have a lot of confidence growing up. Mm-hmm. And when I saw those military posters, I remember this photo of this Marine. He's got the camo on. He's got his rifle and he's got a rope around him. And he just looks hard. He looks tough. I was like, I don't know what that guy has, but I want it. And I think when they see people with these belts, when they see the Muhammad Ali's of the world, right, they want that. And they know the only way to get it is to step inside the ring. And that's what we provide them. We provide them the opportunity to become a champion. And that's what they want. And I think as they start training, they start building their confidence. And that's that's the deal is like, where are you building confidence in inner city on like a daily basis? Right. right. Every time they show up to the gym, build their confidence a little bit more. They learn a new punch, build their confidence a little bit more. They get better at sparring. So it's the process is what they, what gets them hooked. Let me throw another theory at you, Mike, and that's positive male role models, encouragement from men. Um, I imagine a lot of kids who you come across, they have a similar background to you. You didn't have a dad in your life, right? I have not. I've never met my dad. I'm, what, 35? Um, did not have a father growing up. So how many of these kids who come into the gym don't have dads? Probably 70, 80 percent. Okay. More, probably more. And where would they turn for a male role model? You said, who do they turn to? I said, where would they turn? So I think this is part of what you're offering. It's and this this gets into a lot of problems of inner city America uh, and especially um, the black American experience for kids. Having a positive male role model in your life keeps you away from a lot of bad life decisions. Absolutely. And so, you know, (laughs) I joke and call myself an urban capitalist, right? Like I love to promote entrepreneurship in urban communities. But one of the things is I also make it a habit of being a part of the community. So I walk the beat in Newark every day. You know, I got my beard, got my fitted on, you know, and I think there's something about that because a lot of times when we go into these environments, right, we make it successful. You know, we go get our college degrees, we work in corporate America and stuff. And at a certain point, you can look so disconnected from the community that it makes it hard for kids to feel like they can relate with you. So I try to make it a habit of going into the gym, still coaching, still training. And I do think that um, that leads to a huge uh, impact on the kids because they can see you, they can touch you. You know, it's not like you're just coming in and giving a speech, you know, once every quarter and then leaving. It's like, oh, man, I know Mike. Mike is going to Stanford now. You know, I just saw Mike on TV. He just wrote a book. And so you show them what's possible. That's the thing is like, I think when you grow up without a father figure, your future is very, um, it's like the dark side, right? Like Star Wars, right? Like there's a lot of, you can't see it. 
You know, there's a lack of clarity there. And so, you know, I'm just speaking for my own self, right? I'm always kind of putting my own future together. Right. Like, who do I want to be like? I pull from my boxing coach at the Naval Academy, right. Jim Finale. I pull from my business coach, Bill Watkins and other real male role models. And I think positive male role models, that's what they provide. They provide a vision of what the future can potentially look like for you in the absence of uh, not having one. So you need to borrow another slogan, Nike's. I want to be like Mike. Yeah, I want to be like Mike. I want them to be better than Mike. Right. <laughs> Very good. Um, so, Mike, uh, for those who are listening to this who are interested in the Courage Academy, let me ask this question. Uh, the old adage, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Uh, how do you fund the academy? And if somebody listening to this wants to help you on that front, how, how, how can they help you out? Well, the first thing I want to do is when I started Ironbound, right, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. Right. right? I just was a guy with a passion for serving inner city kids. I want to start a gym. And I say that to say is there's this whole method around lean startup methodology, Steve Blank and stuff, et cetera. So what I need to do before we can move forward with the Courage Academy, I need to validate that this is something that people are fired up about with the anchor donor who is willing to come in and help us bring this vision uh, to life. And so if someone is interested in potentially being that anchor donor uh, to kick off this project and start to help us mobilize a network around it, you can reach out to me directly at Mike at weareironbound.com. And let's get the conversation started. Okay, very good. Hey, let's talk about the book now, Mike. Um, very well done. And I like the way you laid this out because you divide your book into four parts. Let's go by them bit by bit. Uh, let's start with part one, which you've already alluded to, and that's your personal story. Uh, born and raised in Tyler, Texas, I believe. Uh, single mom, you never met your father. Tell us how you actually got to Annapolis. What was, the, what was your break? What was the opportunity? Well, I had a friend growing up. His name was Jason McKinley. Me and him were best buds. And he was three years older than me. So when I was a freshman in high school, he was a senior in college and big brother, essentially. And when he was graduating high school, um, he went to the military. So what did I say? Oh, I'm going to go to the military. Right. My mom was very adamant about me going to college. And so we started to explore ways that I could do both. Now, locally, I actually grew up between Tyler, Texas and Bryan College Station. So Texas A&M was in my backyard. So I was like, oh, I'll go do the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M, right? And then I'll join the military, be an officer. Everyone's happy. Then right. one day I'm in an English class and a guy, we have to stand up and present our five-year plans. And uh, the guy in front of me got up and talked about he was going to this place called Annapolis. And I was like, what the heck is Annapolis, right? And I asked him for a brochure. He showed it to me. And I found out that, you know, not only do they pay for you to go to school, so you don't have to come out of pocket. You know, it's also where at the time, like Navy SEALs came out of. I feel like every male wants to be a Navy SEAL at some point in their life. Right. Back in the day, maybe not now. They want to play Fortnite. But back in the day, <laughs> people wanted to be Navy SEALs, right? right? And so I was like, man, this is the best of both worlds. And so I, that's how I found out about it. I went through a very rigorous process of getting in. Um, it was very hard, to be honest, because like I wasn't recognized academically. You know, I wasn't recognized for my sports. I basically played basketball, rode the bench, but I just was like adamant, like this is the place for me. And I did everything possible to go. I, my mom got me a tutor from uh, Texas A&M University. Um, so I was spending my weekends with him trying to get my math grades up. So I go to Annapolis. I took the SAT six times um, to get the score. Um, I just, it was, it was very hard. That's a book in itself, but it was the journey. It changed me because I was focused you know, I was getting up, running to school um, like six miles um, in order to learn how to like run. Right. I joined the cross country team. I did a bunch of stuff to get in. And I finally got my opportunity to go to the prep school. And at first I got denied. 
right? They were like, thank you for applying. I was devastated um, because I had sold this future of myself going to Annapolis. Then I graduated in May and literally like May 1st, the Naval Academy had contacted me and said, we have a spot for you at uh, the Naval Academy prep school. And the way it works is if you go to the prep school, you have to earn a 2.0 GPA and you're guaranteed to go to Annapolis. And I think I finished up with like a 2.8. So uh, it was a long process, but I made it happen. Well done. And were you at Annapolis when Admiral Ruffhead was the superintendent? I'm not sh- sure. <laughs> I don't remember. I was there from 2006 to 2010. It's funny how uh, life works, Mike. So Gary Ruffhead, uh, retired uh, chief of naval operations, is a Hoover fellow. He also is the head of the selection committee that I'm on, which chooses a veteran fellow. So it's just it's funny how life works in these circles sometimes. Absolutely. Okay. Part two of the book, Mike, you discuss making visions a reality from idea to invoice, good phrases you call it. Tell me, sir, what makes for a successful entrepreneur? What's what's your observation here? I think for me, it is a lack of ego, right? So when I first started, right, I always thought the idea was the thing. Like we all have these great ideas, but the longer I've been in the fight, the more I've learned that like the market will really tell you what is of value. Right. And we're willing to pay. Like if people aren't willing to put their money down, whether it's a nonprofit or for profit, chances are that um, you probably aren't positioned right or there's no market. So essentially, businesses fail primarily for two reasons. Number one, there's no market need. And number two, they run out of cash. And so the best way to avoid both is by having a lack of ego, coming up with your idea, understanding that it is a thesis at best and then going out and validating it. And so someone who is open to that kind of feedback not falling in love with their idea, but falling in love being an entrepreneur, which is, hey, this idea might not work, but there might be other ones. And so having more swings at the plate. Okay. Um, If you're suggesting a successful entrepreneur does not have an ego, um, that strikes me as uh, very difficult for an entrepreneur to run for public office. Because Mike, I've spent a long time working in politics and I've yet to meet a politician who does not have a very healthy ego. Yeah, I can imagine. But uh, do you think that's maybe something that we need to introduce to politics, a little humility? I think so. I think um, humility and empathy, too. So that's another word, like really having empathy for the customer, empathy for the people you're serving, empathy for the community. It's got to be bigger than you. Right. Um, And so if you're asking me that around politics, absolutely. Especially with so much of us going back and forth at each other. We got real problems going on in the world. You know, I can walk the beat in Newark. And see just, you know, um, how, how bad people are struggling. And sometimes we get caught up in all the bickering and stuff. And you got to separate the ego and say, how are we serving the people? You know, how can we make the most impact? Yeah, uh, it strikes me that also what you're trying to say here is to be successful as an entrepreneur, you have to be, well, kind of true to your roots and uh, stay grounded. This is one thing I think people find charming about Warren Buffett. Uh, he still lives in a very modest home in Omaha. His uh, his eating habits are very simple. He's for most parts a pretty regular guy. You wouldn't if you ran into him, you wouldn't realize he's one of the wealthiest people on the planet. He stayed true to himself. Absolutely. And one thing what you're talking about too is you know there's this whole thing around speculation, right? That's what you say back in the day, speculation. Yeah. So it's like, oh my gosh, Bitcoin. I need to go ahead and start a venture around Bitcoin. Do you know anything about Bitcoin? Have you read anything? Right. Like what makes you the go to person or you and your team like the go to people around Bitcoin? And so what I'm encouraging, you know, entrepreneurs to think about is like, where do you already have a tactical advantage? Right. So when I started Ironbound Boxing because of my background, right, that was um, it was huge. Right. Me being a Naval Academy grad, boxer, et cetera. Right. So it made sense to the line. 
And the same thing when I started uh, Ironbound Media. I was very good at branding, had already had the gift of gab, public speaking. So although I didn't know necessarily the technical aspects of podcasting, it was still something that was comfortable in my wheelhouse. So all I'm doing is encouraging people to really think about, you know, what is it? What is a space that you already have some insight in? And if you don't, you can speed yourself up from a knowledge perspective relatively shortly. Yeah. Now here's where I found the boxing over overlap, Mike, and that's part three of the book, which you talk about tools in the trade. You talk about how it's important to get a coach, to get a community involved. But Mike, that sounds like boxing in this regard. Mike Tyson is not Mike Tyson without Customato mentoring him. Uh, a lot of boxers, Tommy Hearns and others, they're not the boxers they became if they didn't have a gym like Gleason's in Brooklyn or in Hearns' case, Cronk in Detroit. So am I, am I off base here or do I think I have it right that there is this kind of uh, synergy between boxing and entrepreneurship? hundred percent, but it takes a different mental model. So here's an interesting thing I found out, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, when we think about sports and performing at a high level, whether it's the Olympics, you know, winning the national championship or, you know, winning the NBA, you know, championships, whatever, right? Nobody says I'm going to be a world boxing champion and not have a coach in my corner, right? Like it just doesn't happen. You need a coach, you need a plan, et cetera. That's just a sport. Right. And we even think about amateur sports too. people that want to perform at the highest level at the amateur level. Mm-hmm. They have a coach. But when we're talking about our businesses, we're investing our livelihood, you know, our friend, our family, we're sacrificing. The last thing we think about is, oh, I need a coach, somebody that has pattern recognition, somebody that can help set me up with a plan and I need to invest in a coach. So what I'm encouraging uh, my readers to think about is to shift that mental model mm-hmm. and really consider getting a business coach, someone that's been there before, they've navigated the entrepreneurial journey, they've got you know pattern recognition from working with hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs, and that way they can call the right play. So when you're like, oh man, you know, if something like, oh, I'm having a cash flow issues, and they're saying, hey, maybe you should invoice your clients up front. Boom, you fix cash flow, like right off the bat. You know, little stuff like that, or about hiring. People start making their first hires. Like, here's the deal about entrepreneurship. It's all sausage making, right? It's like the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, everybody thinks the wizard is this thing. Then they get behind there and it's a guy pulling a bunch of strings, right? That's really what it's like being an entrepreneur. And so having a coach is just a great way to help you really build the systems and build the machine of your business so it doesn't kill you. Yeah, but Mike, are you talking about having a plan or having plans, plural? Because let's, let's go back to philosopher King Mike Tyson again. What's his most famous quote, perhaps? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Absolutely. It's both, though. Like a plan, again, a plan is just a thesis, right? You still have to go out there and execute, right? So like I might get in the ring, right? And I was saying I'm boxing Mike Tyson, right? Me and Mike Tyson are going head to head. I'm on the outside. I'm trying to stick and move like Ali, and I'm getting crushed. You're right. dancing because he's got about 30 pounds on you, right? <laughs> and it sounds like the thing to do, right? Oh, I'm going to stay right. on the outside, but it's just not working. Right. That was our plan. We trained for that. But now I'm in the corner. Plan's not working. And now the coach is like, all right, Mike, I need you to go inside. You got to gotta go toe-to-toe with Tyson, right? Because until you go toe-to-toe with him, he's not going to respect you, right? Yeah. But having somebody in your corner that can call that. So it's both. And uh, are you familiar with um, Roger L. Martin by chance? Yeah. Yes, I am. He just published a great piece in a Harvard Business Review, this uh, video where he talks about, you know, planning isn't strategy. Right. Right. At the end of the day, strategy is an idea that we think, right, we, a plan we put together, but you still got to go out and you got to test it and you got to validate. 
Yeah. So to, to not overuse the boxing metaphors, but I think what you're also trying to tell us here is prepare for a long fight. Uh, I don't know if you met David Shaw when you're at Stanford. He's our uh, football coach. Uh, Shaw, when he um, at the beginning of the season sits his players down and he has the following conversation, Mike, he says, I want to thank you all for coming to Stanford. And I hope you find this a rewarding experience. And then what he says is that my job is to work with you for the next three to four to five years of your life. And if you're good at what you do, you might take the next step and play on Sundays in the National Football League, but odds are you're probably not going to. So then what he says, Mike, is my job is not just to prepare you for the next three to five years of your life, but the next 50 years of your life. And I think maybe this is what you want to convey to especially young kids. It's not just about what you're doing tomorrow. It's not what you're doing from a year from now. You got to be thinking round by round, big picture about what it is you want to do with your life. I never... I don't want to say I never did, but as I'm getting older, I'm getting a better understanding of it. And I was just now, talking. Now, yeah, now, granted, most kids are 15 years old. Yeah, they're, just, they're living in the now. But at some point when you're relatively young, you've got to kind of drill into kids and young adults, young men and women that, you know, you got to be kind of planning your life out here. And what I was getting at was um, I like obviously I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. So that was me being intentional. Right. As I've gotten older, I've really understood the power of intentionality. And that is absolutely something we preach to the kids. Because right. I think a lot of people feel like life is happening to them and they feel on the defense instead of getting on the offense and getting on the offense is saying like, you know, three, four, five years from now, where do you want to be? 25 years from now, where do you want to be? And there's no guaranteed you'll get there. But at the very least, you can prime your mind and get yourself on the track and know when you're steering off course. Um, intentionality is something that's huge. I think it's something we should be teaching in the public schools is something we should be teaching in the churches, right? Like a lot of these kids, right? They have no idea how to manifest their future. You know, that's been the biggest thing for me being at, uh, as part of the Hoover uh, veteran fellowship is I would have never thought I would have been up at Stanford, you know? Um, and he, yet here I have, you know, I've been here with an amazing cohort um, and it's gotten me thinking a lot about, you know, what I just talked about, about that intentionality. It's like, you know, did I set myself up early on, by not being intentional with how, you know, where my life would end up. You know, I, th I didn't think I was smart enough to go to business school. It's funny. I write a book about entrepreneurship, but I was leaving the military. I never thought I was smart enough to go to business school. So I didn't even apply. Uh, maybe I was traumatized from taking an SAT six times, no standardized tests. And I was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. Could be. Well, let's look at your life round by round, Mike. So you could argue that one round is the four years at Annapolis. You can argue another round is your service in the poor. And thank you for serving, my friend. Uh, but now you're in another round, which is in Newark. Tell us what the road what the road took you to Newark. You, you're coming out of the Marine Corps and you're from Texas. I mean, how do you end up in Newark, New Jersey, of all places? So my sophomore year at the Naval Academy, mm -hmm. I got an email from a professor that said he was looking for black midshipmen to come to Newark, New Jersey to teach leadership and mentor young men of color at a private school in Newark called St. Benedict's Prep that yeah. caters to a young man of color. Mm -hmm. And so me, uh, one of my life philosophies is lifting as I climb. What's mm -hmm. the point of being on the mountaintop if you're the only one up there? Mm -hmm. And so I've always kind of had this give back component. I mean, that was the community I grew up in. Like I told you, I didn't grow up with a dad. So, you know, the church community um, uh, that we had in Tyler, like some of the men would come and take me to get a haircut on Saturdays. And like for a young black male, getting a haircut is like a big deal, right? You don't want to be in the barbershop with your mom sitting there, you know? So, you know, these have members from my church to come make sure I got a haircut to come take me out, right? That always stuck with me, that give back component. And so when I got the opportunity 
um, I got the email from St. Benedict's. I was like, sign me up. So they sent me here. I spent two summers at St. Benedict's um, as an as an intern working with the young men. I took them on the Appalachian Trail. I taught leadership classes and stuff, et cetera. And when I transitioned out of the military, I decided, hey, I could recreate the Navy boxing program at St. Benedict's Prep because I joke with people. You know, I didn't win three national championships boxing a bunch of midshipmen at Navy. I spent time at inner city gyms in Baltimore, D.C., Brooklyn, the Bronx, and a lot of uh, the young men and women inside these gyms look like me. And whenever I talked to them about what their aspirations were outside of the ring, they felt like their only option was to turn pro or go to the street. So I felt like that was a broken system. And I plan I vowed that I was going to start an inner city boxing program. And so I just felt like Newark would be a great place to start because it was urban. I knew I wasn't moving to the suburbs somewhere trying to convince people to invest in a boxing program. Something just told me that like Newark, would accept me with open arms around starting an amateur boxing program because boxing is a poor man's sport. It's from the streets. It's greedy. And so you got to go into these communities where it thrives. And so for me, Newark was a great opportunity. And so I relocated here, um, took a job at St. Benedict's running their residence hall. I lived in a giant house with 70 teenage boys for three years uh, as a house parent, literally raising them. Um, and then uh, while I did that, I started Ironbound. Have you talked to Cory Booker? I met Cory Booker when I was an intern. I've met his team, but I have not spoken to him um, since. Yeah, because, you know, he is, of course, obviously a f- current U.S. Senator, former mayor of Newark, Stanford guy, by the way, played football at Stanford. But this for many years was his thing, Mike, as a mayor of Newark, trying to turn that city around. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm hoping to connect with him. We haven't had a chance to have a sit down yet. Good. Hope to. Uh, so let's jump back in the book, uh, friend. Part four, you talk about challenges facing black entrepreneurs. Um, here's one thing that strikes me when we talk about black entrepreneurship, Mike. It's largely defined by sports, Michael Jordan and entertainment. This would be Oprah, Shonda Rhimes, people like that. Are you looking for a different kind of black entrepreneurship? So can I address the first thing now? Yes. So I was thinking about this too, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly what you said, sports, entertainment, media. Yeah. There's infrastructure there. That's the why. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you are a black kid in Newark um, and you're a young man, you say, I want to start a business. I want to raise venture capital. You look in your media network. How many people are venture capitalists? Right. How many people can get you in front of these people? But if you say, I want to start, you know, I I, I did a track, you know, I did an album or something. Can you listen to my mixtape? Right. We've got the infrastructure for um, music. Right. We've got the infrastructure for entertainment. We don't have a lot of that other infrastructure there. So that's why you start to see this pipeline where there's more uh, black entrepreneurs in uh, media and entertainment It's because of infrastructure there. And so all I'm trying to do is I, I guess you could say I am trying to show people another path. But at the same time, I do understand and recognize some of the roadblocks. I guess what I'm getting at, Mike, here is realistic success as an entrepreneur. Fine for a kid to grow up and want to be Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan is freakishly gifted as an athlete, and he is the, you know, who knows what zero 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 one percent of you know superb athletes in the world could be Michael Jordan. So you're a kid, maybe you're talented at basketball in Newark, but you're probably not going to be Michael Jordan. So you want somebody to succeed. I think you have to kind of drive into what's a little more realistic goal. Absolutely, and I think. Again, what I said before is entrepreneurship makes people feel like they're participating in the economy. Right. Um, I found myself at the New York Stock Exchange with one of our donors and a friend and mentor, fellow Naval Academy grad, Brian Rafjan, um, to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. And I just thought about like how far away that felt for me 
growing up versus now as like an entrepreneur, like it all makes sense to me. Like, you know, companies going public, raising IPOs, you know, all that makes sense to me in a way that it didn't before. And so, you know, getting more people to feel like on the offense. And I think that's what leads to so much depression. And I think we got a lot of depression here in Newark, if I'm being honest. I think people are depressed. I think people are unemployed, right? I think um, we got devastated by the pandemic, a lot of local small businesses. And so how do you give people um, something to live for? You know, something that incites them and motivates them and gets them out the bed each morning. And when you see entrepreneurs talking about their ventures, right, they get so excited about it. And the thing is, it does beat you up. It's hard. There ain't no guaranteed success. And I'm actually going to write about just how hard it really is. But it's the opportunity to do it on your own terms. So how do you turn the corner in Newark, Mike? What, what needs to be done? So I think a couple of things need to happen. So there's an article that came out recently about Newark being this new tech hub. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if I'm sold on it, to be quite frank, um, because while a lot of these cities are trying to attract outside talent, which you need, technically I'm outside talent. I'm also like, how are we building from the ground up? Right. And I think what we need to start doing is a lot more um, kind of public and private partnerships to lower the overhead costs that a lot of Main Street entrepreneurs are facing, you know, access to co-working space, um, access to programming to really create our entrepreneurial ecosystem from the ground up. One of the great things about New York City that they do really well is the pop-up scene, right? So makers, you know, my girlfriend's a maker. She sells uh, handmade wellness products that she makes out of her home. And you go to this pop-ups and there's this one pop-up called the Grand Bazaar, right? And mm-hmm. it's in New York City. And what they do is they're able to offer this pop-up with low, um, obviously they charge the makers, but they don't have to charge them up as much because they use a school. So the school on the weekend they turn into this pop-up makerspace. I mean, this pop-up marketplace. And so I think stuff like that is a great way to promote local economic development, right? Because the overhead cost is what kills a lot of early stage uh, entrepreneurs, particularly when you look at the numbers and you see our lack of access to capital. One of the things you talk about is venture capital. Uh, Founders of color receive less than like 2% of venture capital. And you start pulling those statistics, right? You know, black males, like females, like what does that really look like on a percentage level? You say, okay, well, what about banks? Well, the thing is, banks really aren't invested in early stage, unproven, unvalidated business models. So where are these communities getting their capital from? Well, you say friends and family, but I just told you, Newark, you know, a lot of people are living below the poverty line. And so what we needed some community, some group-based economics to really support one another, lift as we climb. And that's why I go back to those public-private partnerships. But I think the biggest impact, honestly, is the private sector. You know, the ability to incubate other entrepreneurs, you know, make your spaces available for them, provide them guidance, mentorship, and coaching. I'll take that all day. I know Newark's leaders will look at high tech, Mike, and they'll think this is cool. This is cutting edge. But I think there are two problems here. And well, San Francisco comes to mind in this regard. Uh, San Francisco is, of course, a town built on high tech now. And San Francisco has dizzying wealth. But, you know, in San Francisco, is Mike, it's a city of extremes. There is dizzying wealth and there's dizzying poverty at the same time. And the two are very far apart. But secondly, the city's become gentrified, Mike, and it's lost its culture and its flavor, if you will. Old neighborhoods are not the same anymore. And so you don't want to kind of sell your soul if you're Newark. I mean, you want to have wealth. You want to have success and opportunity for people. But boy, you don't want to give up the past. Right. And one of the things I told people during the uh, pandemic, I felt like we had an artificial economy. So we had a lot of corporations come to Newark and set up their headquarters here. But when the pandemic hit, 
They none of them lived in the city. Right. So all that local money getting moved around, it was gone. All those businesses that replied on that foot traffic were gone. So we spent literally like two years here with just the locals. Right. Um, just surviving, literally, like how are they staying above water? And so that's why I'm such a big component of when we say these terms like we're a tech hub or all this other stuff. I'm talking about like, what is a local economy? Right. These tech entrepreneurs, do they reflect the demographic of the city? I mean, Newark is like 90 percent black and Latino. So when I don't see tech entrepreneurs that look like that. Right. I, you know, I want to call, you know, I want to call their bluff. Right. I don't I don't I don't buy into it. So for me, I'm all about, again, how do we create local community based economic opportunities for people um, in the city? Right. I'm not a venture capitalist, but one of the things I can do is I can invest in my community through content and education, starting with that first book. And education, Mike, for those kids who aren't fortunate enough to go to a school like Benedictine, what what happens to them? So it during the pandemic, right, we mm-hmm. we lost like we probably like lost a whole generation around education because right. Zoom calls, all that other stuff. It's just not the way to learn when kids are like in eight or nine different classes. I literally talked to my boxers. I'm like, how many classes you got today? They're like eight. You know, they barely cut on their Zoom cameras. So we need to rethink what does education look like? I think with the Internet now, man, we got world class universities at our fingertips. You got YouTube, you got podcasts, right? You've got uh, blogs. I think what we need to do is we really need to start to shift what it means to educate oneself. You know, and the Naval Academy was one of the first places that really exposed me to this idea that the instructor is not always right. That was the first time I ever saw someone get corrected. I saw a teacher put a problem up on the board and solve it. And one of my classmates was like, um, sir, that's wrong. <laughs> I was like, you, he's a teacher, you know, he's, he's, he's got to be right. But being an entrepreneur has taught me about self-education. And when I don't know a problem, I got to go read a book and figure it out and stuff, et cetera. And so I really think we need to rethink how are we teaching these kids to educate themselves? Mm-hmm. And are these kids, Mike, are they thinking about college and they thinking about you know, entrepreneurship and glory or do they have hope? Yeah, they do. So we actually um, we just launched last year. We launched the Ironbound Scholarship. We give out ten thousand uh, dollars um, for two kids to go to university here. Rutgers University is a local university. Right. I got my master's from uh, Rutgers Newark in American studies with emphasis on uh, race, culture and uh, business. And uh, we've given out fifteen thousand dollars in scholarships this year to four uh, recipients and we're handing that out next week. So they are thinking about college. Um, it's a great pathway. We're also trying to say, okay, what does the future of work look like for you? These are the questions we really need to start asking. And I'm just trying to nudge a lot of them to think about that sooner rather than later. And it warms my heart when I walk into the gym and the kids are like, Mike, I listen to your podcast, you know, because again, that's an easy way for me to just kind of see it's an easy way for them to, understand how I think outside the ring. So I think we need like a full on frontal assault around reform and education. We need to get classes on audio. We need to get classes up on YouTube, right? We need to really, um, we really need to think about what's important. The other thing too is like a lot of the jobs around tech, um, coding, uh, like Google Docs. I met, I forgot his name, but one of the challenges is, I didn't even realize this, when kids are leaving high school, mm-hmm. sometimes they lose access. A lot of them lose access to their email. Right. So how are they accessing Google Docs? How are they doing all this? These are basic things that you have to learn how to use to compete in today's workforce. When I got out of the military, we weren't using Google Docs. 
I had to get trained on how to do that through OJT, through a consulting gig I got. And they were like, Mike, I need you to write this playbook. And I was like, with what? And they just gave me a Google Doc and I just started to make magic. And so I think we need to think about all the different um, components to educating and training these kids today. And finally, Mike, how do you get parents to buy in? Because I don't think you are where you are today unless your mother has your back at all times. I think the challenge is, I, I, I think about like the hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Right? I think a lot of people, uh, parents in low-income communities, they're focused so much on survival that it's very hard for them to lift their heads up above water when they're drowning. So they're drowning. Like, I, it's an honest question. How are people living in San Francisco, in Newark, in Detroit, right, when the, the income level is so low? Right. I'm, I'm curious to know, like in, in San Francisco, like I for people that are on minimum wage, like how are they literally afford to live? Like, how are they able to live in San Francisco? The answer, Mike, is you end up moving out. You end up moving out. Yeah. Same thing here locally. So I think a lot of parents, I think we need to improve their quality of life. Yeah, I think that's how you get them involved. I think you got to improve their quality of life so they can see the bigger picture when they can't see the bigger picture. And they're just focused on survival. There's that aspect. Um, I think I, I don't know, man, I had a lot of trouble with parents, if I'm being honest. Yeah. You know, I felt I, I found the best progress going directly to the kids. And yeah. I learned this just through the Marines, like the Marines. You talk to Marines, right? You go directly to them. Mom and daddy can't save you. I found the best progress talking and investing in the kids, because unfortunately, some of our kids, parents, you know, are just not in a position to um, provide the best uh, how do I say this? Um, support and knowledge. You know, one of my kids was homeless, literally. Right. Um, and he ended up having to move in with me at St. Benedict's. And now he's in college and he's doing really well for himself. And we're really proud of him. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that was going on in his home, you know, was really a detriment to him, like mentally, physically and spiritually. And so how do you kind of separate that? Right. How do you show these kids that like, Hey, I understand this is going home right now with your mom and everything, but like you also got to make sure you're taking care of business. You have no effect on that. Um, and so it's a balance. And so for our motto is we really focus directly on the kids. So Mike, part of having a plan is to have goals. So tell me what goal you have in mind for newer. Tell me what progress looks like. I think the first thing for me is how do we make ironbound boxing self-sustainable? Mm -hmm. We started and shoestrings and bubble gum, you know, um, over the course of the pandemic, you know, we got a lot more visibility. And so, you know, we raised over a hundred thousand dollars for like the first time, which is a huge accomplishment for us. So for us on the iron bounce front is first time, make it self-sustainable where we're running programming. Um, you know, uh, we got coaches, we got the entrepreneur education, everything is clicking. I think outside of that, we got to start getting some capital in the streets uh amongst the entrepreneurs particularly the small business owners i think there's a lot of roadblocks and one of my ways around the roadblocks is just through education i know it sounds terrible but it's just the only way i can think about how to navigate those challenges because if i let my mind go to lack of access to capital if i let it go to the systemic issues in our way it takes my eyes off the prize and so it's not that i'm not not acknowledging that those things are there i just try to encourage people to focus on what they can control um, and so really entrepreneur education from people that understand entrepreneurship, 
I think that's another issue too, is like, there's this academic side of the house around entrepreneurship where right. stuff sounds good in theory, but I think we got to go bare bones to a lot of these urban entrepreneurs about like, yo, how do you set up your LLC? You know, how do you get your first 10 customers? Like this basic stuff, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurship has been influenced recently by, and I love it. I love lean startup methodology and I love all the tech lingo and stuff. But what I've noticed in a lot of these community-based entrepreneur programs is they're trying to educate urban entrepreneurs through the Silicon Valley lens. And I don't think that's the best way, right? I think you got to meet people where they are. A lot of them are like, like, here's the deal. Like I was with the, uh, one of my clients is a tea company. Um, and one of the things that they want to do is they're tired of doing their pop-ups because pop-ups are so devastating, right? And they need access to capital. Whenever I talk to them, it's like, what do you need? They need more capital. Well, here's the realistic, right? Admiral James Stockdale has this thing um, uh, when he was in Hanoi Hilton. And uh, Jim Collins actually calls the Stockdale paradox. You got to be able to accept your current reality for what it is, but have faith that things will work out in the end. Your current reality is you need access to capital. Here's uh, here's the deal. You need to generate X number of dollars to look competitive, to get a bank loan, you know, to right. get the capital that you need. That's just what it is, you know? And the reality is we got to grind it out and you got to figure it out because you can't get that capital unless we make this happen. And so those, those are the kind of conversations I have with people. So I'm like the late Admiral Stockdale, like you, a Hoover fellow, I trust you already knew that. Uh, so here's a thought. Um, you train executives, you train CEOs, I imagine. Uh, get them to fall in love with what you do for them and then get them to fall in love with the idea of the academy and get them to chip in. But question for you, Mike, who's easier to train, the kid coming off the street or the man or woman sitting in a CEO, a C-suite? I think the kid is easier to train. Yeah. Yeah, the kid is easier to train because the kid knows we have something that they want. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the CEOs doesn't actually know what it is he needs. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you said, they might be looking around any and everywhere for everything but a coach. Mm-hmm. Right? The kid knows he needs a coach. The CEO doesn't. OK, that's interesting thought. And final question for you on that. You're training an executive. What are you taking away from them as you're watching them? What are you learning in the experience? They obviously are learning skills from you, but I imagine you're gleaning something from them, aren't you? Yeah, I think the first thing is what drives them. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the challenges that a lot of executives face at the higher level? Um, one thing we learned in the military, I never knew just how lonely the military was as an officer, you know, dealing with that responsibility 24 seven, um, you're in your head a lot. And then you're in combat and you're out your patrol base. You're literally the only officer at that patrol base. So it is very lonely. It's similar when you're an entrepreneur, I'm at my studio here in Newark, New Jersey, spend a lot of time alone. I have my team and stuff virtually, but you know, there's a lot of stuff in our heads. A lot of executives are lonely. Um, they're carrying all the decisions. They're carrying that weight. And so they need people to talk to. The other thing I'm learning is they don't have it figured out. I think there's some like I, I was telling people this growing up. I never saw the owner. Owners were always the mysterious person. Like you go to the shop, you know, or to get your car cleaned or you go to your favorite restaurant or whatever. But you like never saw the owner there. But right. now, um, you know, doing business coach and everything that I do spending time around owners, you realize like they don't have it figured out. And I always assumed that they did, that we're all just, it's just this giant thing. Everybody's making it up as they go. Um, and so when I figured that out, that gave me more confidence in what I was doing around Ironbound because I thought that like, you know, I just, I didn't have the answers, but you realize, you know, a lot more than you really give yourself credit for. And it's really just about moving forward and executing and getting better every single day. And so focusing on that, 
the other thing I'll say is, you know, the power of relationships. So, you know, you see people that are successful or you see them making business moves and you think it's some like, you know, I don't know, like the stars magically align. But then you find out that like the guy he did business with was like his roommate in college mm-hmm. or, or something like that. So seeing how people are leveraging relationships to help each other, see how each other, how executives are focused on creating new value. Um, that's been super uh, impactful um, for me and how I think about how I think about business. Speaking of relationships, Mike, let's uh, close with a few thoughts about Hoover's Veteran Fellowship. You were in the uh, cohort, as we call it, of uh, 2021 to 2022, the first class we did. So congratulations. You're one of our founding fathers, Mike, if you will. But uh, tell us what drew you to the experience. And for those veterans listening to this, we tend to bring in young men and women who are relatively recently out of the service. So, and, But you're interested in public service. Tell us what drew you to the program and tell us what you got out of it. I think for me, the opportunity to create change. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, can I be honest with you, Bill? I was yeah. a little hesitant at first because I didn't know much about um, the Hoover Institution. Now, mm-hmm. I'm a voracious reader um, and I love, you know, I read a lot of Thomas Sowell. I read a lot of Glenn Lowry. I actually listen to his podcast and stuff. But to yeah. be quite frank, I didn't know if Hoover was going to be a place for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I looked at it and I was like, you know what? You know, veterans, really Ironbound has been standing on the back of the veteran community to really support us and what we do. And me being open minded, I was like, I want to give this a shot. And so uh, it's been completely an amazing experience. I mean, the intellectual stimulation I love. Um, I love being around my fellow cohort members, getting to learn from them and the different projects that they're working on. Um, Everything from human trafficking to uh, the fire issues out in California. Um, and anytime you bring us together, I feel like just magic happens. Being around on campus at the Hoover Institution has been great. You guys got such a beautiful facility. Um, and I'll tell you this. I grew up. I didn't have cable growing up. Right. Mm-hmm. And I used to watch Frontline like every Thursday when it used to drop on PBS. And I remember watching Dr. Rice on Frontline, right. you know, following her journey. I remember reading Time magazine. But to find myself getting to meet her to find myself in, uh, you know, the pinnacle, this kind of like intellectual capitalism has just been super humbling for me. And I'm very thankful for Hoover for inviting me, the Hoover Institution for inviting me in and allowing me to be a part of it. I think she'd be great to train because she is driven at everything she does. And she is very athletic and just very intense. So I imagine she'd be pretty, pretty darn good inside the squared circle. 100%. And I encourage all veterans that I come across, you know, if they are trying to bring some social change and they have a project and an idea and aren't afraid to work on it and attempt to bring it to life, I think it's a great program um, to be a part of. And you guys have welcomed us in with open arms. And, you know, on behalf of my court, I just want to let you know how much we appreciate it. Well, the doors are always open, Mike, if you want to come back. I don't know if we have a boxing gym on the Stanford campus, though. That's a that's a question I got to look into. Yeah, a lot of uh, educated people have a, uh, tend to have a negative look on boxing at times, right? Because they're like, oh, you know, we're the smartest minds in the world. The last we need to do is, you know, punch each other. But again, veterans understand courage, grit, resilience, right? It's one thing to read about these things. It's another thing to face and experience those emotions head on. And there's a reason. Boxing is so primal. Boxing just gets to the core of us as individuals and human beings that it will always, it's just always there. There are people always curious to test themselves. 
Yeah, this I don't know about the future of the sport. I remember, look, I'm I'm of the age. I remember when Ali and Frazier fought the first time in 1970. Uh, it was on what was called closed circuit TV, which meant you had to go to a movie theater, Mike, and buy a ticket for it. But I remember as a little boy sitting up and listening to it round by round. They'd give you the recap at the end of the round. This was a huge deal. The world came to a stop when those two men got together in the ring. But boxing matches today just don't have the same cachet, do they? Yeah, you know, it goes back to market, right? What does yeah. the market look like for boxing, right? Um, unfortunately, on the professional side of house, because there's so there's such a lack of money in boxing, to be quite frank, right? Like four boxers probably make more than everybody in the entire sport. So it's created this fraction, this scarcity mindset. So all these different belts and everything, and it just hasn't been focused on the, the, the customers. It's not focused on the viewers, and we got to get back to that. Well, there's another plan for Iron Mike Stedman, become the WA commissioner, the WBC commissioner. Are you political by chance? Do you belong to a party? Do you have any interest in politics? I do not. You know, I love the private sector. I think that's one of the things that um, I was excited to come to Hoover to is just continue to learn. You know, again, I read a lot. Um, I think the private sector, I just, when I was starting Ironbound, right, like I was up against it. I was trying to raise corporate dollars. I was applying, I was applying for grants, didn't get anywhere. Then one day I just walked around the street to the local uh, restaurant. And I said, Hey, my name is Mike Stedman. I run his boxing program. I got a $600 check. Did it to the next one. I got a $600 check. And then it hit me that the people that really are going to rally around the community around what we're doing are, you know, those local business owners, right? The people that have the ability to make those decisions. And so I think for me, I can do more good um, on the private sector side of the house. And as you can tell, I don't mind talking. I like having my podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love just being able to just speak freely and be myself. And I feel like politics will put me inside a box. Okay. The book, Mike Black Veteran Entrepreneur, tell the folks how they can get it. You can get it on Amazon. It drops this month. It's Black Veteran Entrepreneur, Violate Your Business Model, Build Your Brand, and Step Into Greatness. And I want to say this about the book. The reason I wrote this book is because I've met tons, thousands of veteran entrepreneurs. Nine out of 10 of the Black veteran entrepreneurs I come across want to start a business to support the community in some way, either their local community or the veteran community. And that's something that I wanted to cultivate. And I think Black veteran entrepreneurs represent the biggest untapped resource we have in America today because they're getting out of the military and they're going back to these local communities. And I think if we can empower them with the knowledge, skills and capital to start and grow businesses, we can create a network effect of urban, in, uh, urban entrepreneurship. Mike Stebbin, thanks for coming on the podcast today and for being a part of Hoover's Veteran Fellowship. But more importantly, my friend, I'd like to thank you for your service to our country and what you hope to accomplish in Newark and really anywhere, Mike, where people who read your book may be inspired to chase their own dreams. Thanks for having me, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to re rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Mike Stedman, go to his website, Ironbound Boxing, building champions in and out of the ring. And that website URL is ironboundboxing.org. Let me repeat that, ironboundboxing.org. By the way, if you've served in the armed services and want to learn more about Hoover's Veteran Fellows Program, by all means, go to hoover.org and check out our page detailing these great men and women. It won't be long before we're talking, taking applications for the 2023-2024 cohort, so don't miss your chance. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with an installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.